Hi, everybody. This is One New Man Ministries. I'm Lee here with Jerry and Bob, and we are in Ephesians 2 ministry, a ministry of reconciliation. And uh, we want to preach that Christ Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, is who has brought us together for Ephesians 2:14. for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So Jerry, what are we studying today? Today we are going to backtrack and pick up a piece from last week's Haftorah. We want to begin with Micah and then we want to jump over into some new covenant teaching in John chapter 2. And then hopefully we'll have time to tie that all together with the story of uh, Phineas and Elijah. Uh, the connection between all of those passages is the idea of zeal. Um, we want to consider uh, zeal in its positive sense as it's presented uh, when our zeal is correctly aimed. Uh, and. I think that uh, if we can get back and talk about it, we also talk about how zeal uh, can be used for the wrong reasons, aimed at the wrong thing, right? Zeal may be natural to us as humans. Uh, the question of its uh, usefulness and righteousness ultimately comes down to what are we zealous for? Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's hopefully what we're going to do. But we want to begin with uh, last week's Haftorah, which was from Micah chapter 5. I'm sorry, chapter 6, and that famous verse in verse 8. Uh, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So, you know, famously there are 613 commandments in Torah, here, Micah has distilled all of the teaching Torah down to these two things. You know, you see this in a couple different places in Scripture. Uh, Yeshua was asked about the most important commandment, and he really distills the whole Torah down to two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. David in Psalm, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but he distills all of the Torah teaching down to about eight different points. So different writers take different emphases but in in general they all come to the same conclusion all of what the torah teaches is about these central values about loving god treating men the way god wants them to be treated and i think david says uh jerry that that his law is based on righteousness and love mm -hmm. so right and right. and and to walk humbly with thy god which is really you know, uh, going to be a central theme in where should zeal be appropriately directed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so um, what do you want to say today about justice? That's really a big hot topic. Uh, there's an awful lot of discussion about social justice and activism going on in our time. Uh, does the justice of, uh, of, of these kinds of causes uh, is it the same justice that God is is looking for? Um, the uh, second part to love kindness uh, is that Hebrew word chesed, that uh, wonderful expression of God's covenant love and faithfulness, uh, that we are to love that, and then, of course, walking humbly with, with God. So how do you see those things... Um, as, as we uh, think about our experience today, uh, what, what does God require of us? How, what, what is the day-to-day -day expression of these, these things in our lives? I guess that's the question to ask. How is it that we are doing these things and manifesting these things in our own lives? Which one do you want to begin with? I think humility is a good one. I mean, that's when you can hear God and that's when you can implement the other things that, uh, that he requires. 
And do you have a working definition for humility? For me, it would be denying yourself, you know, and, and putting God first and, and everything you do, say, and think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's, to me, that's what it boils down to. So, so the, uh, the humash, the commentary here says, um, it says, uh, to walk humbly is the correct translation of the Hebrew is questionable. A better and higher sense is obtained if we connect it with the later Hebrew, which denotes modesty, decency, chastity, personal holiness, purity, and translate the third portion of the prophet's answer to walk in purity with thy God. So that's interesting. I, I really think from a point of view of Yeshua, to walk humbly with thy God really comes down to, and I hope we get a chance to get back to this, but that the cross, at the cross, our our sins are the only, not the only thing that are crucified, but our self is crucified. And that's why Jesus says, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Because, you know, to walk humbly with God means to have God be the purpose the aim, the objective of our zeal, of our passion, not ourselves. And, you know, we can get back to it later, but that's where Balaam made his mistake. He was about himself. Mm-hmm. And that's not walking humbly with God. In fact, he refused last week, you know, when God told him, oh, don't go with those people. He went anyway, and that kindled God's for a wrath. Way to go anyway, right? Yeah. The idea i think is picked up by yeshua when he says uh blessed are the poor in spirit there's a tie over in the language usage uh between the greek um translation of the old testament and the new testament usage of the same words the poor in spirit the humble are the ones who are poor okay and it doesn't only have to be poor in the sense of material wealth Although, again, in, in that culture as well as ours, the poor, the poor generally are the downtrodden and the ones uh, who have it the hardest and, and the toughest. Uh, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. Meek here is really a synonym, if you will, for this poor uh, in spirit idea. And when I think about humility, then, I think of... Uh, Paul's description of Yeshua as he writes to the Philippians. Remember this? He says, um, let, he says, uh, he says, if there's any joy or encouragement in Christ, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look to not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So don't be only self-interested, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in, in Messiah Jesus. So in Corinthians, remember, he says, we have the mind of Christ. And so here he is telling us, in particular, what I want you to be like-minded, and here's the mind of Christ, here's the mind that you have in Jesus, right? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when I think about humility, um, and a working definition. This is, this is kind of where I, 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 I think God is directing us. This idea of being poor in spirit, the idea of being uh, meek in, in, in spirit. Uh, take my yoke upon you, I am humble and lowly, Jesus says. You know, and so here, all, all, of the, 
all of the divine attributes that he had, he willingly set aside for the interests of others. And we are the others, right. all, all of us who have had our sins forgiven through his death and been raised up in new life in his resurrection. This is, this is why he humbled himself. And his humility, is, his humbledness, if you will, is seen in his obedience and his denial of himself. So because he did that, then he has every right and expectation to say to us, deny yourselves, take up your cross, follow me. Well, follow him because this is what he did. We follow him in self-denial. We follow him in, in being crucified. And then we follow him then we get to the idea that the rabbis want to pick up secondarily about purity. Well, we can't be pure on our own. We're not pure on our own. But having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, seeking the holiness that is ours in Christ, right? That's, that's yeah. where we're moving towards. I, I agree. And, um, you know, if you look at the original sin, which was putting self before God, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, this idea of denying yourself. And on the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting, the one that you skipped, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And when when I've read about the ordering of that, the mourning comes from like Isaiah seeing the holiness of God and realizing in the presence of God how nothing he is, how he is totally undone. Mm -hmm. And that, that place of being of of walking humbly with God by understanding the holiness of God and and how how undeserving we are of that, right? He's undone causes the mourning the mourning of oh, I am so deficient of spirit. I am so poor in spirit. And it's in the, the standing in the truth of how poor I am in spirit and mourning over that, that there, that I can be comforted. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, sort of what denying oneself and taking up one's cross and following Yeshua is about. Agree. But you know something, self can die hard. <laughs> it, it, it needs to be burned off sometimes. And, and uh, you know, I've been a believer for a little over 40 years now, and it, it's a slow process. You know, it's, 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 it, uh, I heard a sermon one time that he compared your faith to that of a tree, that at a young sapling, it's very flexible and goes. But as you grow and firm in your faith, then you start standing firm in what you believe. And I think that's... A good analogy, and we, and we can't do it on the uh, on our own. Amen. We need the cross and the resurrection, which really leads us into a good place for John, and uh, you know what we're going to study in John too. Well, yeah, the idea that the gospel ends at the cross is not the whole gospel. The good news of Yeshua is the message that on the cross he took the curse and paid the price and that we can be forgiven. But the rest of the good news <laughs> is that death does not have the last word, that uh, Christ is alive. And John, not John, but Paul writes, the, one of the important things about the resurrection is its sign value because Paul writes that uh, by this God proves Jesus is the Son of God with power. So we are looking at a passage in, in John chapter 2 that uh, talks about 
Jesus going to the temple. And if you open up to John chapter 2, we're all familiar with the end of the Synoptic Gospels when Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the Holy Week, and one of his first actions is to go into the temple and drive out the money changers and the people selling the animals in, in, the, in the temple. And we lose sight of the fact sometimes that this passage in John also is part of Scripture. And the reality is that Jesus frames, or the, or the writers of Scripture, God himself, the inspiration to the Scripture, frames Jesus' ministry around these two similar events, going and cleansing the temple at the beginning of his ministry, going and cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. So there's something pretty significant about this whole thing, right? And even in the word significant, let's remember the first four letters are sign, <laughs> right? So, so here's, what, here's what John writes. Uh, it's Passover time, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So remember, this is commanded in the scripture for all of the uh, Israelites to appear at the temple before the Lord. They were supposed to come three times a year, once at Passover, once at the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, and once at the end of the religious year at uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot. So he is obeying the commandment, first of all, uh, by going up to Jerusalem at Passover. And in the temple he found those selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. So let's just understand why, why is this business activity taking place here. So you were commanded under the law to bring an offering to the temple. And so since many people are coming from long, long distances, they can't uh, bring the animal perhaps, or they have some grain, and it's too big to carry. So they have, they have sold their product back at their home, and they are now carrying Roman coins. But in order to pay the temple tax, they have to pay in Jewish coins. So when they showed up, they had to exchange their Roman coins for Jewish coins, which should be okay, except that the law also says don't charge your brother's usury, no interest. But these guys are doing it, marking it up, <laughs> right? So, so I, I coming from a long way, I know that if I bring my coins, they're just going to charge me extra. So I'll just, I'll just go in, and instead of doing that, I'll buy an animal for sacrifice. Those two, they are being sold at exorbitant prices. So basically the, the businessmen, air quotes again, the businessmen inside the temple are making money off their brothers, which is not according to the law. So that's why these people are in there. So it says that when Jesus sees them, he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And I think that it's important to, to keep in mind the, the picture of Jesus may be over-dramatized in some people's minds. This whip of cords is of the same nature that people drove sheep and oxen with. It's not some deadly, not like the whip that they used on Jesus when they flayed him before his crucifixion. This is, this is an animal driving tool. Okay, and he uses this to drive out the animals. He uses this to drive out the, the, the money changers, the, the, the men who were selling the, 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 uh, the, the, the cattle, etc., the, the pigeons. He poured out the coins and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, okay, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, so, what does, Jerry, do you have an exclamation point at the end of those? If that's a quote from Jesus, and is there an exclamation point? Because my translation says, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Well, exclamation points are editorial choices. They didn't appear in the original text. I mean, this is whoever translated that version of the scripture uh, decided to Put exclamation he sounds points. he sounds a little upset though he's overturning well, tables. I, I don't I don't want to minimize that he is angry even, but I think that sometimes I hear uh, this 
over-dramatized, what I would call over-dramatized okay. portrayal of his anger. He's not losing it, I don't think. He's definitely under control. I think we talked about this earlier. I think Jesus is giving us an example of what it looks like to be angry and don't sin. I think Jesus is giving us an example here, too, of uh, doing justice. Okay. Right? Because, because these people are taking advantage of poor people. Okay. Right? So... So he tells them, take these away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. Uh, we can kind of juxtapose that with the quote that we have of Yeshua at, in the Synoptic Gospels when he clears the temple. He says, uh, my father's house was designed to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Okay? People were supposed to come here to draw close to God. You have set up a system that pushes them away. Right? Right. You have made people resentful of having come having to come to my house good point isn't that awful and so he he is naturally upset then it says his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me okay we'll come back to zeal and talk about that a little bit if you want that's that's uh from psalm 69 9 which says it is zeal for your house that has consumed me the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Mm -hmm. Psalm 16. Yeah. That's a quote from the scripture. Right. And if we could take time to unpack Psalm 69, that would be a great one too, because there's an awful lot of great messianic stuff in it. It's a Psalm of David. He's uh, crying out to God because of his enemies. And he is in some ways reflecting Yeshua's heart when he says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Uh, the picture in Psalm 69 is people are falsely accusing him of all kinds of things. And he's saying the things that I'm being accused of are, are a result of my zeal for you, Lord. I, I'm being accused because I love you. Right? right? And so, so he, he, John writes, and this is clearly an editorial note, right? This is stuck into the middle of the narrative. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And... I want to want to read to the end of the passage because I think there's a tie-in to to this verse with the end of the passage. So he says this: uh, "Don't make my father's house a house of trade." The Jews said to him, "What sign do you show us for doing these things?" In other words, who who died and left you, boss? Who gave you the authority to do these things? What sign? And remember when we talked last week about Jews require a sign. What sign do you give us that you have the authority to do this? You come in here and you upset everything that we've ever known. Who gave you this right? What sign will you show us? And Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, so just surface level, this sounds crazy. It's taken them years and years and years. They say 46 years to build this temple. This is uh, the, the reconstruction and the and the refurbishment that's been taking place under Herod the Great. You know, the, the, the temple was, Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 BC. The Jewish people return under Zerubbabel uh, and, and Joshua the high priest, and they resume construction. It's finished in approximately 500-ish BC. And then Herod the Great comes along about 400 years, for, well, 450 years later, and the temple, that temple is probably looking a little shabby. And so he institutes, and one of the ways, one of the reasons he did this was to ingratiate himself with the Jewish leaders because he was an outsider, right? He was not a Jewish person himself. He, he was what we would call a half-breed. And so he wants to, he wants to kind of butter them up and get on their good side. And so he is, he, he, he uh, authorizes this remodeling of of the temple and so that's what they're talking about about the 46 years this this re remodeling under under herod but they say uh it took 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days but as in so many other sayings of yeshua there was a spiritual import that they completely missed and this again is what john adds uh, as the editor as the writer of his gospel he says but he was speaking about the temple of his body 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, looking at all of the gospel discussion about the disciples and what they knew and when they understood things, it doesn't seem that they completely got everything together until after Jesus was raised. It wasn't until they saw the sign of the resurrection, which Jesus is talking about here, and they apprehended it correctly in their heart. They understood the sign to mean this one really is the Son of God. This one really is the anointed one. This one really is the atoning sacrifice. And what I love about this here at the end then, it says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So I think that there's uh, a reference back to this verse that, they that John quotes. They believed the scripture, zeal for your house has consumed me, and they believed all of the words that Jesus had spoken to them. They recognized from the get-go then that Jesus' authority is of equal authority with the Scripture. And we want to be clear for everybody who's listening. Every time you read about the Scriptures in the New Testament, they are talking about that portion of our Bibles that we call the Old Testament. That was all the Scripture there was. And that's all the Scripture that they related to. The verse that I think about in this little piece of the conversation is that one that, that uh, Luke writes in Acts. Remember, Paul goes to Thessalonica and he preaches the gospel and he establishes a little church there, but he's thrown out. And he moves on to a town called Berea. And he goes to the synagogue and he preaches in Berea and it says that these were more uh, noble than the people in Thessalonica because they studied the scriptures to see if these things were so. And when Luke writes they studied the scriptures, again, he is talking about Genesis to Malachi. For our Jewish listeners, he's talking about Genesis to Second Chronicles. Okay? So these are the scriptures, and because of the resurrection, the sign of the resurrection, properly understood by these disciples, they believed the scriptures, and they believed Jesus' words. So, so that's really important, because what are Jesus' words here? destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up so and and then John says but he was speaking of the temple of his body after he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this mm -hmm. so first of all I think that's what what important what is important there is the temple is his body but it also is our body, that we are part of the body of Christ. And he is the head and we are the body. And, you know, you, you, were, you made some great statements earlier when we were talking about this of raise up the head and the body will follow. And um, the, the importance of the resurrection here is that from Jesus's in the beginning of his ministry right here, this is right after he's changed water into wine. It's the next event, the next sign. In the beginning of his ministry, he's talking about the resurrection because it's only because he is born of the Spirit and he goes to the cross that he can crucify the flesh and pay the price uh, for death because flesh can't pay the price for flesh it required spirit to pay that price and because he's born of the spirit yet incarnate in the body and through the crucifixion he provides us the way for resurrection not just for himself but for us and on, and the regeneration the death of the old man and and the regeneration of the new man which is being conformed into the image of Christ day after day, trial after trial, tribulation after tribulation, till hopefully glory after glory we are in Christ. 
we are in deep, deep mystery, it seems, when we start to talk about the resurrection of the body, because clearly in John he's talking about his literal physical body, but we read into that sense then uh, when Paul starts to write about it that uh, there is a spiritual body that is the the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones that comprise his body. He is the head, we are the body. And Paul, I think, teases those things out from this kind of almost like a germ or seed idea. Uh, you know, he was talking about uh, raising up his body. Paul talks <coughs> in um, Romans chapter 6. Um, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So in Paul's explanation of what transpired between the Son and the Father was not simply the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins, but in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, not only his renewed and restored life, but ours as well. That all took place in this good news message of death and resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no new body. Without the resurrection, there's no new man. But having created the new man in Christ's death and resurrection, what's the goal? that we might walk in newness of life. And so this is just another way of, of saying so many things that, that Paul writes about in other places. This, this one new man built in purity, uh, modeled after Christ in humility. Um, all, all of the, the righteous ways that, that we are called to live have been made possible. And I would say even more than possible have been, have been rendered um, the supernatural outflow of the new life that's been put in us. Does that make sense? Amen. So, so that, you know, when we talk about resurrection, um, I think what, what we were talking about also, and you, you made reference to this, uh, in Paul's prayer at the beginning of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he prays for the Ephesians in, in, in uh, verse 19 that they might know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places. We need to understand that the immeasurable power of the greatness of his might is measured not in simply raising Christ the head, but he raised the body at the same time. That's what we were talking about, you know, move the head and the body has to follow. Well, this is, this is the spiritual application of it. And you go, wait a minute, that's the craziest thing in the world. Well, no, if you go back in Ephesians 1, what does he say? You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, because we are in Christ. Christ is seated in the heavenlies in a real sense we are seated in the heavenly places too in Christ this is why the call to us to live like Christ has validity and has a claim on us because we have already been transformed and now in our lives we seek the daily practical transformation that God says is our true inheritance what is our what what is our our, our purpose our telos the end of us going to be it's going to be perfectly shaped, conformed to the image of Christ. And so God says, this, this absolutely is where you're going to get to because this is the way I see you now. God is jealous or zealous for us to get there. Right. So we're back <laughs> at zeal. And, and, you know, I think uh, when it says zeal for your house will consume me, well, where's the house now? The house is we are being built into a dwelling place for the Lord, Christ Jesus, Yeshua HaMeshiach, himself being the cornerstone. Mm -hmm. And and we as the body, he is the head. 
that is where our zeal should be, that we are one new man together in Christ. And, you know, I think Romans 12, 11, we were talking about this, says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So I think that, you know, zeal is an correct to correctly directed zeal towards God, towards serving the Lord, being fervent in spirit is part of the lesson here that we're being taught. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we, this is what we were saying, that all of us have zeal for something. What, what did you call zeal? A burning passion? An a ardent, desire ardent desire for yeah. some objective. So, so all of us as human beings have zeal. It's, it's part of how we're built. The biblical question that God is asking all of us is, what are you zealous for? What are you zealous for? So true. And, that, and I think, you know, that's a good <clears throat> opening to lead us back to this contrast of ba Balaam and Phineas because, you know, these are two people who Balaam was you could say zealous for himself his own power you know he violated you know God's direction and then Phineas who we're studying you know this week he's zealous for God and you know at the end of uh, the the Balak the Parsha from last week it sort of sets up the story you know of of Phineas and one of you sort of lead us through that jerry and so we can understand because god tells us something about his jealousy and we're trying to tease out zeal and jealousy here mm -hmm. yeah um oops let me just look up something real quick i think it's deuteronomy 30 I'm not finding right now what I was looking for. But anyway, um, in chapter 25, last week, we had the uh, trick, the cunning scheme of Balaam, uh, who was not given permission by God to bring a verbal curse against the people, but bless them. Uh, but he went back to Balak and suggested that there was still a way to subvert the people and bring God's curse down on them by leading them away from worshiping God, following God, uh, being the pure people that God intended them to be, that God's zealous anger over them would rage out. And he convinced the uh, Moabite and the Midianite women to go in to the Israelite camp and entice the men. And the scripture says that they uh, went with the women, they fornicated with the women, they followed the women's uh, gods. And so the plague of God breaks out in the camp and Phineas uh, stands up and <clears throat> ends the plague by spearing uh, a, a man, uh, his name was Zimri, a, uh, one, one of the Simeonites, and a Midianite woman named Cosby. Now, what's especially noticeable about this, if you, if you read it carefully, is that uh, this happened right near the front of the tent of the meeting. I mean, this isn't just happening at some distant place out in the camp. This is now right in God's face, right? right. And so Phineas stands up this is this is where he's serving anyway he's he's a levite uh he's the grandson of aaron grandson of aaron the. um and and he is zealous for god he is in a rage over over these people uh i i can't even think of the word that i want desecrating. to desecrating desecrating thank you great word uh desecrating the place of god trampling on God's commandments, having no respect for God or what God has said, and he rises up and he kills them right there at the tent 
the entrance to the tent of meeting. Puts a wow. spear through the Israelite man and the Moabite woman right, right through him in right front through. of everyone. And, and, it and says, that's where that's where our Parsha starts. And that's where our Parsha starts. And it says, then the plague was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So this is a pretty serious business. So uh, our, our Parsha today begins with uh, what the Lord says about Phineas and the things that God commends him for. Uh, he turned away God's wrath because he was jealous with my jealousy among them. Remember, God has said to them a couple different times along the way in revealing his law, uh, do this, don't do that, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You're mine. I have every right to be jealous over you. I have every right to expect you to be faithful to me because I'm going to be faithful to you. Right? Right. So this is, this is the contract between uh, all parties in a contract is the ex expectation of faithfulness, fidelity. You know, you're going to hold up your end of the bargain. I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain. And the Israelites failed to do that. Phineas stood up in, in, in that place with the, with the Lord's own jealousy for his people. In some way, I think Phineas saw not just these people needed to be killed, but these people need to be killed for God's sake and for the sake of the community is not just an end to, to these two sinners, but it is also an intervention on behalf of the community. And in fact, um, <clears throat> it says about Phineas then, because he, he stood up for God in this way, God tells him, I'm going to give him my covenant of peace. In verse 12. Verse 13. That covenant of peace shall be to him and to his descendants after him, the covenant of perpetual priesthood. So it's that at this point that it's established that out of all of Aaron's descendants, the priesthood is now going to come through Phineas. But keep reading. Yes, well, that's where I'm getting to. Why, why is God doing this for Phineas? Why has God singled out Phineas? Because he was jealous for his God. And, and this is what, what is really startling what what he did in killing these two people made atonement for Israel wow and isn't that like Yeshua he was zealous it says zeal for your house will consume me mm -hmm. so he was zealous for God and he <coughs> made atonement for the children of Israel Amen. And, and he has, of course, the high, he's our high priest, everlasting high priest. Everlasting high priest, yes. And that's, that's the, the beauty of being able to have Yeshua as the filter, if you will, to go back and read the New Testament or read the Old Testament, is to be able to see Yeshua in all these different places. And what we're doing here when we talk about this is really not any different than that conversation Yeshua had on the road to Emmaus with those 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 three disciples, I think it was three. Um, he showed them Messiah in the pages of Scripture. And so when we look at Phineas, just like you've pointed out, we're looking at a picture of Yeshua. And, and you know, something you said, Jerry, really stuck, struck me. You were talking about fidelity in relationship. You said faithfulness and fidelity and God knows our hearts right it even says later in that same section of John 2 that we were reading about Jesus that Jesus he himself knew what was in everyone so God knows our hearts and he's jealous for our hearts what's he expects fidelity it's like a man and a woman who are married, if something violates the covenant of their marriage, it's natural for that jealousy, that zeal, because if I'm, if I'm married, in fact, I am married, <laughs> and I love my wife, and I really have a zeal to be of one heart with her, and I think that is this, this idea of one flesh, this 
mystical idea of one flesh in Ephesians, is it five, that uh, Paul talks about of Jesus and his church. It's this idea that there really is this desire on the part of God for fidelity and faithfulness towards him and on the part of Yeshua for our, as believers, for our fidelity and faithfulness to the body. So let me just throw this in. Uh, God's not asking us to, you know, pluck up our faithfulness because one of the fruits of the Spirit is faithfulness. Let, let Jerry, let's define that real quick. Uh, I mean, faithfulness is it loyal and devoted. Those are the two words that that align with faithfulness. I just want to say that out there to our to our audience that that that's what he is to us. He is loyal and devoted to us, and I just think that's incredible. Yes, because <clears throat> uh, when Paul writes to Timothy, he quotes a uh, we 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 think it's a song or a, a set of proverbs that were popular at the time. Uh, uh, if we are faithful, he is faithful. If we are unfaithful, he is faithful. He cannot deny himself. Amen. Right? So, but my point here was that faithfulness itself at this point as followers of Yeshua is not something we try and drum up within ourselves as, as a product of our fleshly will. What I'm saying is that when we surrender to the Holy Spirit, uh, to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Faithfulness is what he produces. And we don't do this often, but can I tell a crazy story about yeah. myself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, I'm in uh, one of the local grocery stores where you can check yourself out. And I had three rolls of ciabatta, or three packages of ciabatta rolls. And for some reason, it was one of those, you check yourself out, and then they check your, your receipt at the door. I had only scanned two. I thought I'd, I, I, sure I scanned three, but I had had some trouble at the machine. And the guy let me go through with only two, and I'm going out the door, and I see on my receipt, because this is when I first noticed it, I see on my receipt, there's only two here, and I've got three packages. <laughs> and the battle began. <laughs> what do I do? I definitely don't want to steal them, but I don't want to go back and deal with the hassle of getting this whole thing straightened out. I'm trying to concoct in my mind some way the next time I come to this store, can I buy, pay for a bag of rolls, but not take it home with me? <laughs> right? But finally, you know, it's just this overwhelming need that's coming up, and you you got to go back to customer service and get this thing straightened out. It was a hassle. It was time out of my life. But it was the faithfulness of the Spirit to keep prompting me, no, you can't do it this way. You can't do it this way. You've got to go back and do it the right way. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the Spirit in us that drums up faithfulness. We, we don't have to try and produce it out of the strength of our will. I think that was what I was trying to say about that. <laughs> it's the conviction that he, he get, does to keep us straight. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Well, uh, Phineas is, is thus singled out, uh, given this perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God. And, what, you know, we may not get to talk about uh, Elijah today, but the reason the Elijah portion is coupled with this portion is because Elijah, too, says twice in chapter 19 that the reason he's in the state that he's in uh, being chased by Jezebel and persecuted for standing up for the Lord is because he was jealous for his God. And I guess the question for us, and we've kind of circled around a little bit, is the question about our own level of zeal for the Lord. question about our own sense of jealousy for God. In a day when faith and godliness seems to be under attack, uh, how, how do we express our jealousy and our zeal? Uh, are we willing to face the slings and arrows for speaking up for the truth when called for? You know, when it says in Micah, do justice, be, doing justice is, is speaking up for truth even when it's not popular, it's not the majority opinion, right? But 
people are being harmed by some of the things that, that our culture is saying is, is the right way to go. So, how do, this, this is a challenging question. You know, it was easier perhaps when more of the culture seemed to be at least Judeo-Christian in some, some large macro sense uh, coming from the traditional morality that we understand the Bible to be teaching, but that clearly is not the case any longer. And at least in our private moments with people, are we willing to go out on a limb and be jealous for the Lord? Or do we clam up and uh, don't make waves? That kind of stuff. Well, I mean, I think that in the church, we tend to, I like the way Bishop Ezekiel Williams said, he told us to be fishermen, but he didn't say fish in the aquarium. In the church, he said, go out to all nations, all tongues. And so, and, and then, and continuing the analogy, Bishop Williams said, well, if you're going to be fisher, some men, you got to have good bait. Amen. You gotta, <laughs> and then you have to, you have to present something different, in from the culture, the world around you, and so you know, I think that's what's being called of us to try to walk in the Spirit, to be in Christ, and the world, and you know, the word says, be in the world, but not of the world, and. We were given the liberty, praise the Lord, in the United States of America to have a show like this and, you know, talk about as Messianic Jews, to talk about Yeshua's salvation. We might not have that liberty in Israel, Jerry. No, you absolutely. You know, and so. Are constricted. Yeah, and so, you know, one of the ways we're showing our zeal for the Lord is we're in here speaking the truth and. Well, we're talking about Yeshua mm-hmm. as salvation and as our Savior. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I just hope that our Jewish brothers and sisters and my prayers, they'd even, that this podcast might be available in Israel and they might even hear it in Israel and know that Yeshua, you know, in Israel, because you speak Hebrew, Yeshua means salvation. That was the name that the angel of the Lord told Joseph to give Jesus, not Jesus, Yeshua, salvation, mm-hmm. because he would be the salvation of his people, right? And so, you know, we're just trying to share the good news and uh, the the power of the resurrection, you know, is something that I think we need to keep teasing out and the power of the cross and and we need to try to demonstrate that in our lives. And like you said earlier, Bob, that that's hard to burn that self up. But as we get older, we realize how temporary the things are around us and what, what the important mission that he has for us. And it just comes to mind when you look at uh, Abraham, his creation mandate was to go out and, and bless. The, he, God was through Abraham's going to bless the nations, going to reach out. And then what is uh, Jesus' uh, last commandment, I think it was, is go out and preach and teach to all the nations. So it, it, we do have to get out, outside of the aquarium and, and reach the others, especially our Jewish brethren, because, you know, they, it's first the, the Jew, then the Greek. So the Jews do have priority, and, and we, I think we need to put a priority on them to reach out to them to share the good news of Yeshua. And, and you know, there's so many attractive pleasures in the world for for us as human beings to direct our zeal our desire towards and that disordered desire leads to diminishing returns on pleasure and to sin and to being in bondage to that and you know the saving grace of yeshua is that through the once and for all atonement for our sins that we are we are freed from the bondage of that sin and given the opportunity for new life. Mm. 
Amen. And and to regenerate a new spirit in him and that we're all sinners Amen. and we all fall short and we all need that grace and we're all works in progress and because of God's zeal for us he will not rest until we are perfected. And that means there will be trials and tribulations because he will give us trials and tribulations to perfect us. And well we, said. And we should be here supporting each other because it's not an easy walk. Right. <laughs> yes, and I think that's a very healthy way to understand trials and uh, tribulations is that they are designed by God. And I should say they're not necessarily sent by God uh, <clears throat> but they are designed by God for our perfection, ultimately. And that gets back around to what are we zealous for? Uh, none of us are zealous for trials and tribulations. But would we be zealous for them if we saw them as tools shaping us to be like Christ? Well, put, Paul Jerry. says boast in your sufferings because suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces well that might be a, a, a perspective that at least helps us to begin to boast about our sufferings right um, as you were talking <clears throat> there can't be one new man unless the old man has died Correct. there can't be one new man unless Jesus on the cross is Jesus resurrected and this is what we're really all about is not simply that that, that Christ died for sins, which we are so grateful for, but that also he was raised up that we might walk in fellowship and newness of life with God. That's what all of the trials and tribulations are, are, are aimed at then, is this walking in fellowship with Christ in, 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 to, 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 to God. I lost my train of thought there for a second. So... When, when we're here talking about one new man, we're talking about the new man Christ himself, Messiah himself, but it goes beyond that then to all of the incorporated people. Incorporated, of course, is a lovely word to think about. Uh, corpus in the middle of there is a body, mm -hmm. right? That we are incorporated into Christ into the new man that he is. You know, he's the new temple. We are the temple of God, right? Uh, he is the new man. He's the new Adam. We are the new humanity in Christ. This one body, uh, like a, a man and a woman becoming one flesh is a profound mystery because it pictures what I'm talking about between Jesus and his body, Jesus and the called out ones. You know, there's, there's just so many lovely, lovely tie-ins, and the resurrection is what empowers it all. Could I, could I, could have put it that way? Because sure. that's what Paul prays for—that you might know the greatness of His power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Because when, again, when He raised the head, He raised the body. Paul puts it this way. We said it in Romans chapter six: If you've been buried with Him in His death, you've been raised with Him in His resurrection. Good point. And that's what the baptism is all about, is it not? Being baptized into Christ. We want to be right. careful to say the thief on the cross was not baptized, but he was saved. <laughs> you know, G, I just think about, you know, making the two comparisons of the old man and the new man. The old man, and, and we, I think we all were at one time, is, is living a life of temporary pleasures. And then you have trials, and those trials on the, on the natural man tend to make a person bitter. But when you're the new man, you go through these trials, they make you better. And God's got a new life that's already deposited within you to help you navigate through this crazy world that we live in. So I think it's, I mean, if I had to, there's no comparison, I mean, uh, of accepting Christ or living a life of, em an empty life, what we talked about before, and a life of th temporary pleasures, and no, I, I would take the new life mm -hmm. any, any day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are drawing to a close here at our time. We want to uh, invite our listeners once more, if uh, you have never entered into the life of Jesus through faith, uh, he is calling you, he's inviting you, 
The good news of the gospel is that though our sins separate us from God, Yeshua has paid the price of those sins. You can be totally forgiven because Yeshua has already paid the price. You are no longer on the hook with God for your sins. Jesus paid it all. But more than simply having our sins paid for, we are also participants in the resurrection. The new life that he has received, the empowered eternal life, is part of the gospel. The scripture says that if you call upon him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so we invite you to consider Yeshua, not only paying for your sins on the cross, but risen again that you might have new life, life empowered by the Spirit of God living in you, that you might become part of God's one new man, united across all barriers and boundaries, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, black, white, any other color that you can think of. Yeshua gathers all under his banner. Will you come? Will you put your faith in him? If you will call upon the name of the Lord, if you believe in your heart that he is risen from the dead, God says you will be saved. Amen. So we invite you to name the name of Jesus. Let me just uh, say a prayer, and if this is your prayer, pray it along with us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him for my sins. And now I want to confess that I believe you raised him from the dead as well. I believe that when I follow Jesus, I am empowered by the Holy Spirit, that your spirit comes to live in me. And I want to ask you, Father, now to forgive me for Jesus' sake and to send your spirit into me that I might walk the walk that you desire, live the life that you desire. And one day when Jesus returns, that I will be with him and spend eternity with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We are One New Man Ministries. We are available at onenewmanministries.org. That's with the number one. We're also available on your favorite podcast uh, streaming platform as One New Man Ministries, only that one is spelled out, O-N-E. But please, uh, if you've enjoyed this, share this with your friends, and we hope you'll be back with us next week. In the meantime, God be with you.